Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from our guest speaker. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, I told the first service, it's just a real privilege for us to be, to be with you today and to be worshiping in English. It's so good to be before the throne of God, worshiping in your, in your heart language, and it gets Becky and I every time that we get a chance to, to sing in English with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's a reminder of why we do what we do on the mission field, so that the people that we work with have an opportunity to worship God in, in their heart language. And one day for us all to be before the throne of God, right? Worshiping the Lord in our heart language. Um, sorry. So, five years ago, I had an opportunity to preach at Gateway. And we looked at Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, how God calls his followers to, how God calls his disciples to follow and to fish. So, that was the first message. This is the second message in that series. And if you all will hang around, this is going to be a five-message series. <laughs> but I want us to look at, uh, God calls his disciples, yes, to follow and to fish. And then there's this transition that happens that I think is so important in the church that if we miss it, we really miss the reason that God has called us to himself and, and the work that he has given us to do. So I want us to look at the last words of Christ and how to make them our first priority. So Jesus had called his disciples to follow him and to fish. And then at the end of Matthew, he gives them a commission. And you guys know this, probably every missionary speaker that you've had has gone to this passage. But Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And a lot of times you hear the Great Commission, we start in verse 19. Guys, verse 18 is really important. We are going in the authority of Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the focus of the Great Commission that we see here is two words, go and make disciples. That's three words. Go and make disciples. Those, that's the verb that carries the weight of what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. So there, be, there was a point at which he asked them to follow him, and then there was a point where the disciples become disciple makers. And that's the transition that I want to talk about today. It's the transition that we are wrestling with in Mozambique right now, and I think many churches are wrestling with. We have lots of disciples, but very few that have become disciple makers. If I were to ask you, when is the last time that you shared your faith, and with whom are you discipling, you could probably identify whether or not you're a disciple maker. And for me personally, if you say, yes, I am discipling somebody, the next question then for me is, who are they discipling? And that is where Becky and I are struggling in our own ministry to see that third and fourth generation of disciple emerge. So I want us to ask, how, how do we do this? Because the, these are the last words of Christ. And as Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary says, Christ's last words should be lasting words. They should guide us 
and he mentions the, the Great Commission in each of the Gospels. And then at the beginning of Acts, he starts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And, and he reiterates that we are supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to the very ends of the earth, right? And then Acts just kind of lays out how the Great Commission is played out. And so I want us to ask the question, how do we go from being disciples to disciple makers? What does that process look like? And to do that today, we're going to look at the words of Paul to Timothy, his disciple. We're going to go to 2 Timothy. Last words of Paul written to Timothy, and they're kind of written in a genre that would be called a farewell discourse. Well, what does that mean? Okay. Well, it's the same discourse that Moses used when he's when he's turning over the leadership of Israel to, to Joshua, okay? It's the same words that Jesus, it's the same type of discourse that we see when Jesus is in the upper room. And now Paul, in 2 Timothy, he's in his second imprisonment. He knows he's going to die. In his first letter to Timothy, he gave him lots of specific instructions. Now in his second letter, he's pulling together and he's, sorry, he's summarizing his discipleship relationship with Timothy and saying, hold on to these things, not for a specific purpose, but for the rest of your life and who you will pass them on to. So we're going to just take a look at that, that a couple passages there, look back through it and say, how do we become disciple makers? Okay. So if you have a Bible, um, you're welcome to turn with me to second uh, Timothy uh, chapter one. We're going to start in verse 13 and 14. What does it mean to be a disciple maker? Um, verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, follow the pattern of sound words. We have to know the truth. We have to have right doctrine. And Paul had shown Timothy what right doctrine looked like. He taught him the truth. This is Paul who wrote Romans, who wrote Ephesians and these books that are just saturated with good doctrine. But he uses the word, follow the pattern. And so I thought, well, let's take a look at this word pattern. That word pattern literally means a sketch or an outline. Another way to understand it in, in English would be a prototype. And I thought, why in the world would, would Paul say, you know, a sketch of sound doctrine? Surely Romans is like a treatise on doctrine, isn't it? But then I started to reflect, and I think actually what he was saying is very wise. When I look at our experience on the mission field, let me explain kind of what it looks like. So you guys play a sport here that you call soccer. We call it football in Mozambique. You guys use shoes when you play soccer. A lot of our folks will play barefoot. You guys have a soccer ball. We usually have plastic bags that are put together with you know, some twine or something, and they'll play with that. You guys usually play on grass, we'll play on dirt. Your field is usually flat. Ours is usually has an incline, and it usually has some sort of permanent something on that field, like a tree or a, you know, or a termite mound. Like the coin toss is really important. So we're going to play downhill with the cashew tree at right back. All right, you guys are playing uphill with the termite hill playing left half. <laughs> but here's the deal. You could be driving to my house and see people playing, and immediately you would say, Brian, they're playing soccer. Somehow you would know that fundamentally it's the same thing even though it looks different in my country, right? Now, if one of them were to pick the ball up and start running, immediately you would say, what game are they playing? Something fundamentally has changed. Are you with me? 
So the gospel is like that. The pattern of sound words, they are healthy words. You're going to see them differently in different cultures around the world. But fundamentally, essentially, they are the same. And they hold together the gospel. Now, it's not just doctrine. He says that you would follow the doctrine in faith and in love in Christ Jesus. So that doctrine becomes practice in our lives through two things, faith and love that we receive when we put our faith in Christ. You guys with me? Now I know, because I have had the blessing to be well-educated in the scriptures, that there's a lot of things about the scriptures that I struggle to put into practice in my own life. I don't, I'm, perhaps I'm the only one in the room, but there might be other people in the room that are in that same predicament. I think if we look back at that verse of scripture, we find where the weakness is. He says, in faith and love. When we struggle to put that doctrine into practice in our life, it's usually because there's a lack of faith. I don't really believe what I say I believe. Or there's a lack of love. And I have misplaced my love to my own self and I've taken it off of who Christ is. If I really love Christ, if I really believe doctrine, it's going to change my life. Would you agree? So, then he says... By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is the good deposit? The good deposit is the gospel. It's the sound words. It's the fact that holy God created the earth and that we are separated from him because of our sin. But because of his love for us, he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins. And in that one act, the holiness of God and the love of God are reconciled in the man Christ Jesus who received that punishment, our punishment upon him and died for our sins. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And if we would turn from our sins and believe in him, we would have eternal life. That is the good deposit that has been given to us. That deposit is literally the words of eternal life that God has given to us. Now, we think of deposit in a financial term. The way that a rabbi or a Jewish person would look at this deposit, it's a deposit of teaching. I have deposited with you a life, and that life and that teaching is to be entrusted to the next generation and the generation after that. So he's saying, by the Holy Spirit, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. And that's the challenge for us this morning. Keep moving. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So you've already said, you've already seen that he's supposed to live by faith in love, right? The love that he's received from the Lord. That he's supposed to guard this deposit by the Holy Spirit. And now he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. And I know we think about grace as far as salvation being extended to us that we don't deserve. I want you to think about it in this context of this verse as the power of God to do the will of God. You cannot make disciples, but God can make disciples through you by his grace. Amen? So he says this. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Disciple making should be from generation to generation, should it not? There you see four generations. What you, Timothy, have seen me, Paul, teach in the presence of uh, many witnesses, entrusted faithful men who are able to teach others. That's four generations. 
If you look at our churches and the way discipleship usually happens, maybe not here at Gateway, but other churches that I know, it looks more like a wheel, right? And you've got the spokes and all those spokes come back to a central hub. And if you're going to disciple somebody, our discipleship method is invite them to church and somebody else is going to help you to become a disciple of Christ. I think the biblical model that we see here is more like a cell, isn't it? That reproduces and divides and multiplies into next generations. And this is the part I think where Becky and I are really struggling to see that third and fourth generation. We're asking, what is it about our discipleship that we're not getting to those generations? So what is a disciple? Or what is a disciple making, a disciple maker? It's one who guards the good deposit of the gospel and entrusts it to others. You know the gospel, you guard the good deposit, and you entrust it to others, right? So why is this important? Paul gives us three illustrations, and they help us to understand the importance of being a disciple maker. In, uh, in verse three and four of chapter two, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Disciple making is the mission that we have been given. That's the mission. And what he's saying here is stay focused on the mission. A lot of times, if you talk to military people, I am not one of them, they talk about mission creep. We came in to do this, and now we're kind of also doing this, and, and now we're also kind of doing this, and before, before long, you turn around and you go, we've lost the initial mission that we came here to achieve. Are you with me? We see it on the mission field as well, right? I mean, look, we do lots of feeding programs and wells and things to help people with their needs, but that is not the mission, and we can't get distracted that that is the mission. The mission is to make disciples, okay? I think we also get distracted by other things that are not as important. And there's a lot of that going around these days. And my encouragement to you as a brother in Christ is to remain focused on the mission that God has called you to. Why is it important? Because it's the mission. Why is it important? He says this, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And we just had the Olympics. I love watching a particular Kenyan runner. His name is Eliud Kipchoge. I don't know if any of you guys know him. He won the marathon, probably the best marathoner in all history. Humble Kenyan man. And I, I watched the race on YouTube, and, um, and he's running at a pace that is absolutely ridiculous. I can hardly even sprint as fast as this guy can run uh, for a marathon. And so I'm watching the race, and around about mile 30, no, sorry, uh, mile 20. There's only 26 miles in a, in a marathon. So if he's running mile 30, he's way overshooting, right? Right about mile 30, he's running along, and all the spectators are there along the road, and they're all watching Eliud Kipchoge run, and then the other guys are trying to catch him. And there's this little 12-year-old, maybe 13 or something like that, this boy who's probably been waiting the whole race for the runners to get there. And they finally get there, and nobody's paying attention to him. He's in a park back behind everybody, and he takes off running, trying to keep up with Eliud Kipchoge for about 100 yards, and then, you know, off they go. And now, if they get to the end of the race, and that little boy ran faster than Elliot Kipchoge for 100 meters, does he get a medal? No, of course he doesn't. He's not even in the race. How sad would it be for us to live our entire lives here on earth and get to the end and have God tell us, you were running in the wrong race. I asked you to make disciples. 
Why is disciple making important? Because it's the measure that God uses to look at our lives. Are we making disciples? Why else is disciple making important? He says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Each one of us has given a field, has been given a field in which God expects us to invest, in which God expects us to sow the gospel, in which God ex- expects us to see that seed germinate into disciples, in which he expects us to make disciples. He's given us that by his own providence. It's in our families, it's in our colleagues, it's in the people we go to work with, it's in the people we hang out with. That field has been given to you, specifically. And as we've learned from the parable of the the talents, right? God is going to come back and he's going to ask, what did you do with that which I entrusted to you? And I would hope that we're not the ones that think that our objective as farmers is to bury the treasure, right? And not see the multiplication that God desires to see in us. So why is it important? It's important because it's critical to the mission. It's the measure that God uses in our lives. And each of us has been given a field for which we are accountable. Now, Paul had a feel, I mean, all over, you know, all over the world. You guys have been studying Acts, you know that. But God has given us each a field. So now the question is, how do we go about? What is discipleship, right? Or what is disciple making? It's guarding the good deposit and trusting it to somebody else. Why is it important? Critical to the mission, right? It's the measure by which we will be uh, measured. And we've each been given a field. Now, how do we do it? Okay, so there's a pattern of sound words. Now, I want you to follow with me here. When you take a pattern of sound words and good doctrine and you lay it over a life, what you see start to emerge is a rhythm. We're going to call it a harvest rhythm in that person's life. You guys have been studying Acts. Look at Paul. Wherever he went, there are things that Paul just did. First, he was led by the Holy Spirit. He was a man who abided in Christ, who knew the word and spent his time in prayer and fasted and abided in Christ. But wherever you put him, put him in the Areopagus, put him in Lystra, put him on the island of Crete, and he's going to share the gospel, he's going to make disciples, and he's going to group them together. I love Acts 16, right? He's sitting in the Philippian jail. What's he doing at midnight? He's abiding in Christ. He's singing. I would not be singing if I was in jail, okay? He's singing. God opens the doors, and what what happens? He shares the gospel with the jailer. He disciples him, leads him in the first step of discipleship, which is baptism, and the next morning gets them together with the local community of believers, okay? So a healthy rhythm looks like that, abiding in Christ, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and gathering together. And then you lay that over top of Paul, And this is what we see. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, You, however, talking to Timothy, have followed my teaching. Now, this word followed here is to like walk shoulder to shoulder. If you were thinking about rabbis um, discipling their their disciples back in Hebrew times, okay? They would say that that a disciple should be covered in the dust of his rabbi. He would follow so closely behind him to see everything about his life. That's the kind of idea that he's talking about here. He said, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. With which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, 
the Lord rescued me. Timothy is being discipled by Paul because he's living this life shoulder to shoulder with him, following these rhythms, and you look at the stuff that he's learning from him, right? About his teaching, his conduct, his aim in life. So, harvest rhythms and the rhythm of our life is passed from a master to an apprentice. I have terrible rhythm, just, you know, in practical musical sense. I remember as a missionary kid, so I have two brothers, and my mom really wanted us to be musical, so she put us into a, into a church play, okay? She wanted three musicians, and she got three athletes. She was very disappointed <laughs> in her sons. And so I get put into this church play. It was called The Troubable of Zerubbabel. I still remember it because I'm still scarred to this day. And they gave me an instrument. It was this little wooden thing that I had a handle on one end and kind of these corrugated wooden ridges. And then at the end, it had, you know, it was just open. So you had this little wooden stick and you go and hit the end of it. And it was like this rhythm thing that I had to keep for the troubable of Zerubbabel. So then I go and then I'd be like and then I'd be like so about like three times through the song and the director goes, hey, could I have that instrument back? <laughs> and she takes it off my hands and she gives me one of those, you know, one of the triangles, right? And she goes, just, just hold this, Brian, and whenever Jeffrey hits that, then you just hit your triangle. In fact, well, you know what? Don't even hold the string. Just hold the metal part so we can... <laughs> like, we're not, we love this MK, but we're not going to let him mess up the, uh, the play. My kids are laughing because they know I have no, no rhythm, and if they learn to dance, it wasn't for me. Um, each of us has a rhythm. If you look at your life, right, we have a rhythm even in the way that we check social media. We have a rhythm in the way that we exercise and what we eat and how we spend our time. Those rhythms exist and they keep us alive and we love our rhythms. My question is, what are our kids and what are our disciples learning from our rhythm of life? What is missing? When we talk about abiding, sharing our faith, making disciples and gathering together in community, what are my kids not learning from me? There's a verse in scripture that haunts me. It doesn't haunt me. I guess it challenges me as a parent and as a missionary. In Luke 6.40, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And I look over at my kids and Andrew and Dylan and Jana, Kate and Micah, and I go, what are they learning from the rhythms that dad has in his life? What are the things that they're not learning that they should be learning from me that should be a part of my life that they can catch? And I would ask you to do the same. As you look at those that God has given you in your mission field, what's missing from your rhythm that needs to be there? So what are the next steps? How do we move from maintenance to multiplication? Okay, How do we go from just holding on to the end to actually reproducing the Christian life in others and making disciples? Well, John 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You want to make disciples? You have to die to yourself. And that's what you see in the life of Paul, do you not? A man who embraced suffering for the sake of the gospel, and he bore much fruit. You have to evaluate your time. Becky and I... <laughs> 
have been blindsided coming back to America with three kids in sports and another off at, at, at college and our other three here are in school. And I realized like running their lives is like being an air traffic controller. There's just so much going on and you know, emails blah, 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 and all of this. And before you know it, you can, if you don't evaluate your time, you can lose focus on the main things. I don't know if I'm the only one that feels that way, but it's definitely true in our lives. So evaluate your times in two ways. On the mission field, there's a ton of good things that I could do. And often I'll get to the point where I'm like, I just don't have enough time. I want you to think about that. If I don't have enough time to do what God wants me to do, then I'm doing something that God doesn't want me to do. Does that make sense? If my time belongs to him, evaluate how you're using your time. Are you using it in a way that God desires for you to use it? Second thing is, evaluate how you use your time. If you're looking at, your, at that mission field that God has given you, maybe it's not cutting something out. Maybe it's just using your time more wisely in the, in the pattern, in the rhythm that God has given you in your life so that you can make disciples. But evaluate your time. Die to yourself. This is encouraging because I know, like, boy, he's asking us to do a lot. Moving from maintenance to multiplication requires seeking out God-prepared people in your mission field. I want to tell you that in the field that God has given you, he has already prepared people for you to share the gospel with and for you to disciple. Do you believe that? The Holy Spirit is already there working. And so would you pray along with me that God would reveal to you the God-prepared people that are already in your life that need to be discipled by you? That will move you from maintenance to multiplication. And then I would say, ask someone to show you how. Boy, we do a lot in in America about saying, well, tell me how you do this. Well, tell me how you do that. And maybe we give somebody a book or whatever. What I've learned about discipleship is this more like a master and apprentice. Everything I learned about discipleship, I learned from people like my dad, from Pastor Don, from mentors on the mission field, both nationals and, and Westerners alike. Discipleship is something that is more caught than taught. So one of the reasons I think we don't make disciples is we've never been discipled ourselves. So find somebody that's a discipler and say, show me how you share your faith. Show me how you disciple the next generation. And I guarantee you, you will remember that way better than any book that they can put in your hand. And then lastly, make yourself accountable to multiply. What we've discovered on the mission field, I can teach reams and reams and reams of material, but only that which I evaluate, only that which I hold accountable actually gets done and reproduced. If you look back at your spiritual life, when we are accountable, then things start to happen. That's just what I've seen. Now, I would say this. I actually went on a site of a very large denomination in America and looked at some Uh, some sample accountability questions that they had. 57 accountability questions, guys. Now, I don't recommend you sit down with somebody over coffee and ask them 57 questions. That'll be your first and your last meeting with that person, right? Only one of those questions had anything to do with sharing your faith. They were getting together, asking good questions, but it was all focused on maintenance. If you're an accountability group, I would challenge you to ask those to whom you are accountable Ask me, who am I sharing my faith with? Who am I discipling? Have them hold you accountable to that specifically. Now, I will say this. 
Discipleship is not easy. Your heart is going to be broken. Paul, even as he writes this letter, talks about all of these disciples that have deserted him. We have invested years of ministry in people that have disappointed us and walked away from the faith. I have good friends who have seen that even in their own families, people that have turned from the faith. Look, discipleship is hard. Making disciples is hard. There is going to be heartache involved in it. But then the question to us is, if it's so hard, why would we do that? So let's circle back. Let's go to the last words that that Paul is writing to Timothy here. And what does he say? Why is he doing it? At the end of this, you can see Paul is in this prison. He's writing this letter and he says this. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Now there's lots of offerings in Israel, right? There's lots of meat offerings and so forth. A drink offering was just one that you poured out in praise to God. He says, my life is being poured out in praise to God. He says, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Why did Paul do it? Because he loved Jesus. Because Jesus was worth pouring his life out for as an offering of praise. That's why he did it. And he loved the appearing of Christ. Do you love the appearing of Christ? I wonder. Even in my own heart. I think when Christ returns, some people are going to be like, it's a great interruption. Like, we were supposed to go to Disney, and, and he came back. Or more likely, we'll go, I thought I had more time to get my life right, and now he's back, and I have to give an account. I would pray that we would be like Paul, that we would have fought the good faith, that we would run the race to, the, to completion, and that we would say, I've done everything that I can do, and I'm just loving his appearing. I share this with you because this is what is on my heart. What were Jesus' last words to us? Go and make disciples. What will his next words be to us? I would love if his next words to us were, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What will Jesus' next words be to you and I? Let's pray.